This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Anyone can have an eating disorder, but you wouldn't know it from pop culture portrayals. Practically every teen TV show in the early 2000s had an eating disorder plotline. Gossip Girl, Pretty Little Liars, Glee, even Full House. And in nearly every one, the character was a thin white woman or girl. But new research shows that less than 6% of people with eating disorders are medically diagnosed as underweight. And weight stigma in medicine makes it incredibly difficult for people with larger bodies to access treatment. So to break down why this is the case and more, we're joined by Shira Rosenbluth, a licensed clinical social worker and eating disorder therapist. Welcome to Reset, Shira. Thank you. So great to be here. You recently uh, were quoted in a New York Times article about atypical anorexia. For those of us who might not know, Shira, can you just define this for us? What is atypical anorexia? Yeah, so atypical anorexia is basically anorexia. Every single symptom except for the fact that it might be classically or, you know, according to the BMI, underweight. Um, But otherwise, it's exactly the same. So the the symptoms in in people with atypical anorexia, what do they look like? Um, They look like restricting, um, fear of waking, obsession and preoccupation with food. Um, it's all the same, the psychological and the physical effects are, are all the same as, as, as it would be in classic anorexia. And the, the distinction between the two, right, between classic anorexia and atypical anorexia, what do you make of that? Is it helpful? Honestly, I, I don't find it helpful, especially in the work that I do. I find that the only difference is really just weight stigma. Um, and I'm a huge barrier to my clients being able to access care and be able to get a diagnosis and get appropriate treatment. So I find it to just be to be really harmful because it's, if you look at if you look at two people with I'll just say it anorexia, it's you're seeing exactly the same um, eating disorder, and it's and eating disorders are incredibly dangerous and have the second highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And so, um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. the only difference I see is weight stigma. <laughs> then why do you think it's become a commonplace term then, atypical anorexia? Well, I think atypical or we didn't even, a lot of people didn't even know that you can have an eating disorder at any weight um, until uh, the atypical anorexia diagnosis was added. Um, I think the next step would be to take out the word atypical and just acknowledge that people in all bodies can struggle with restriction. So you mentioned a moment ago, Shira, about the difficulty for larger bodied people to get treatment for eating disorders. Why is it so hard? Dig into that for us. Yeah, so I think, I mean, when you look at the media, and I think you you mentioned that before, you're seeing a thin white woman um, over and over and over again. So if somebody shows up at their doctor's office with, uh, you know, the symptoms of anorexia, the doctor might not even think or question it. And not only will they not question it, they might even praise the person for starving themselves and losing a lot of weight. Um, And so, you know, the, the person with an eating disorder, like, will often not even get the care they need. And it can go years and years and years unchecked and undiagnosed. You said they might even praise the person, meaning, I guess, assuming that they were on a diet? Yes, and congratulate them for losing weight, which, you know, that's happened to me in the past with my struggles for sure. What are the the health consequences when when people struggle to access treatment and, and the emotional impact? 
I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because some people with eating disorders uh, or atypical anorexia don't even know they have an eating disorder. So they might not even, they, they just might think that that's their normal and, and go about their life um, with, just with a severe eating disorder, which really just like shrinks and reduces their quality of life. Um, and I think, you know, on, on the worst end, unfortunately, you know, they, they can have medical damage that's irreversible. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's zoom out a little bit here, Shira. Can you talk more mm-hmm. about how atypical anorexia fits into the bigger picture? Right? How common are eating disorders? Eating disorders are—I don't have an exact statistic on hand right now—but eating disorders are really, really common. But um, and I think people think that you know when you think of eating disorder, you think anorexia, but actually, um, I think you, you may have mentioned this earlier, but. Um, only 6% of people with eating disorders have classic anorexia. Yeah. Um, I have some other stats here. A 2003 study found uh, black teenagers are 50% more likely than white teenagers to exhibit bulimic behavior, like binge eating and purging. Um, More recent research, though, it shows black people are less likely to be diagnosed with anorexia than white people, but they may experience the the condition for a longer period of time. And gay men are seven times more likely to report binge eating um, and 12 times more likely to report purging than straight men. Any thoughts on those stats? Yeah, um, there's actually also another study that showed that there was, you know, um, a black person that walked into a, a doctor's office and a white person that walked into a doctor's office. They both stated the exact same symptoms, and the white person was diagnosed with an eating disorder, and the black person wasn't, which really highlights how problematic and dangerous these the stereotypes of eating disorders are. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned something a moment ago that you know sometimes a person with atypical anorexia might not know that they have it. So what questions should doctors be asking to actually assess if someone does have an eating disorder beyond looking at them and and going by what they look like physically? Yeah. So what's your relationship with food like? Um, uh, Are you, if they're, you know, if if they are concerned about eating disorder, if they're doing a screening, what's your intake like? Um, what's your exercise and your movement like? How do you how do you feel about food and where, where's your mind at? It's just like questions about what where their mind is at with, with their relationship to food and their body. Mm-hmm. So we know that weight stigma is a real barrier here. You've mentioned it as well. What other factors, Shira, make it harder for people to access care in this case? With with atypical anorexia or mm-hmm. in general? In general. I mean, so similar to what you said, if somebody is, is black or if somebody is queer or if somebody is um, a different a, a transgender across the, the gender spectrum, mm-hmm. I mean, anyone that does not look like a thin white girl, essentially, because that's what we've seen in the media for so long, depicted as someone who has an eating disorder over and over again. So anyone that looks different than that stereotype is someone that um, often has a huge delay in getting treatment, if at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know this comes up a lot, you know, even when we we discuss um, other health issues, other medical issues, as far as um, I'm a black woman and and we've talked a lot, for instance, about like maternal mortality and how um, commonplace that is, right, for for people who look like me. And and a lot of it boils down to doctors just not believing us, right, not believing what we say in these appointments. Um, is, Is some of that present here? Yes, and I think, you know, even in, in my own experience as, as a white person with an eating disorder, so 
um, you know, I still have a lot of privilege. And even with that, it took four years before someone even um, believed that I was struggling with an eating disorder because I was looked up and down and kind of, it was shrugged off. Even when I was telling people when I was 12 and 13, like, I, I think I'm struggling with food. Um, it was completely dismissed for another four years before I, I got treatment. And at that point, it was so severe and so much harder to treat because as we know, the sooner we can treat eating disorders, the better the prognosis. And the longer the delay, the harder it is to actually recover. Um, and wow. it's, it's a lot harder to get treated when people won't even believe you. Shira, four years, though? I mean, what was that like for you? Four years of, I, mean, of I, was, not... I was a little kid, yeah. I was, I was 10 when it started, and um, there was so much shame and secrecy around it. But, but the shame was, was so bad, and I was still able to tell somebody. And after telling them and not being believed, I think I kind of just gave up and just... Um, just continued to struggle. And I think it never has to get to the point where it's that severe. And it only got to that point um, because I didn't get the care that I needed. Yeah. Well, then how has your experience shaped your work now as an eating disorder therapist? So, you know, I wish I could say, oh, I got help, you know, four years later. And then, you know, I lived happily ever after, but I struggled for, for over two decades trying to get help and then and going to treatment and getting really harmful um, care wasn't really fed appropriately again because I, I didn't look like somebody who was undernourished, even though, you know, I was I had starved myself before ending up in treatment. Um, and mm. so I think because I, you know, I tried to access care and it was so harmful for so long, I, kn I know that I never want any of my clients to experience that. So I've been really passionate at providing safe care for clients in all sizes and genders and races um, and just really passionate about spreading this message that anyone of any size um, can, can have and struggle with an eating disorder. Are there enough eating disorder therapists out there, in your opinion? I mean, I, I think, well, I think because of COVID, um, it's really highlighted how, you know, problematic our, our mental health care is. And the need, yeah. COVID really it did increase the struggles. And so um, everyone that I know has been booked for, for so long. And so I don't think there's enough. And I also don't think there's enough providers um, that are safe for people in larger bodies and, and black bodies and queer bodies, etc. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just joining us, we're discussing weight stigma in eating disorder treatment. And we're talking with licensed clinical social worker and eating disorder therapist, Shira Rosenbluth. Um, so Shira, are common treatments... For this are they less effective for people who might not look the way that doctors expect yes when 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 therapists and the doctors treating them aren't aware that um, malnourishment can happen any size and they're not up to date with the research on atypical anorexia they're often trying to seek help and then getting more harmful um, and stigmatizing care yeah. And then that could look like, you know, I had a client recently that went into a higher level of care. They weren't fed appropriately. They weren't given, um, you know, the same amount of food as, as other people. They were allowed to do really intense exercise when having major problems with exercise. Um, and just, yeah, overall, just not getting the, the care that they needed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, sometimes doctors just aren't, I guess, up to speed on, 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 on how this works. Are the resources that are out there right now up to date? I mean, do, if I was to need that information to help a friend or a family member, does it have what I would need to know about atypical anorexia, for instance? 
I mean, if you specifically are looking at atypical anorexia and you do, you do a deep dive, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's, there's more and more research out there. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what kind of, of help they get, you have to be really, really careful and do extra research to make sure that they're getting good care and not being further harmed. Yeah. And by further harmed, what, what do you mean? I mean, going to treatment and then, you know, being told that, you know, keeping parts of their eating disorder is okay. Uh, things like that, or um, not not being properly nourished, um, their eating disorder not being taken as seriously as somebody in a smaller body, um, uh, being allowed to continue using some eating disorder behaviors. You, uh, your work is guided by a health at every size philosophy. What does that mean? It really just means that everyone in, in any body deserves to be able to pursue health care without focusing on a number on the scale. That's really how I like to boil it down in an easy way to understand. Yeah. Well, talk about how this philosophy then helps people with eating disorders. Yeah. So when somebody comes into my office, I don't look at them and then just assume what eating disorder they have, right? I will ask them questions about what their relationship to food and their body is like. Um, I'll ask them what's going on and diagnose them based on their actual behaviors and not on the body that I'm looking at in my office. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you hadn't gone through this yourself, Shira, do do you think that you would be as equipped to treat these folks? Um, yeah, I think, I don't know, I think that a huge part of what steers and that, like, guides me is, is my own lived experience, and I think that's been yeah. critical in being able to support my clients, for sure. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, is there growing awareness in the medical community, you think, about atypical anorexia, or is medicine just still very behind? I mean, I think they're, they are behind, but I'm really hopeful, especially with the New York Times article and more and more people starting to talk about this because of that. I'm hopeful that, you know, this is brought more to light. We talked earlier about how in, in pop culture, uh, eating disorders, you know, they appear on these TV shows. Often they're really they're side plots in these teen TV shows, right? How do you think media representations of eating disorders affect patients and the treatment that they receive? I mean, I think that if, like you said, when we're looking at pop culture, um, not only is it, you know, this like side little story, it's also um, they realized they had an eating disorder and then they, I don't know, saw a therapist once and then they were cured or they looked in the mirror and they're like, oh, I'm lovable after all. And it's eating disorder treatment and, and is a lot, lot more complicated and messy and painful than just, um, you know, this little like light at the end of the tunnel and, and, and everything clicking and falling into place. It's much more complicated and messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important for people to realize that people don't just, you know, go to treatment and see a therapist for a few months and then everything's better. It can take months and even years to, to fully recover. And I don't say that to, to not give hope. I think there is so much hope and I've seen incredible stories of recovery, but it's more that it's a lot more painful and messy than, you know, the media portrays it to be. Yeah, I mean, it's not tied up all in one bow, right, at the end of a 30-minute episode or or (laughs) the end of a series. Um, People, in reality, struggle with this for years at a time, right? Right, exactly. What does successful treatment look like to you? Like, is it just, is it Um, having a a proper relationship with food? 
yes, I mean, a proper relationship with food and their body. And I, I think I love when, when my clients who, you know, they, they came to my office and food and body was consuming 98% of, of their brain. Yeah. They're able to partake in their life and participate in activities and, and connect with, with relationships and friends with, you know, food and body becoming a smaller and smaller part of their brain and what they think about. Um, and I, it's, it's incredible to watch. So let me ask you this. How can we support a friend or family member who might be dealing with this issue? Um, what should we avoid doing or avoid saying? I think it starts with how we talk about our own bodies, right? And so, you know, we go to a holiday meal that, that's coming up and we don't talk about how um, the food is bad or that we're going to gain weight or that we're so full and how are we eating so much. Like we start really neutralizing food and, and talking about food in a more positive way, not making disparaging comments about our bodies or anyone else's bodies. And I think that's a really important and great place to start. Shira Rosenbluth is an eating disorder therapist and a licensed clinical social worker. Thank you so much, Shira. Of course. Thank you.